Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Broken Oars Podcast. And Aaron, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you take the lead on this one because otherwise it just seems like you're my grumpy northern sidekick. <laughs> I noticed that you do this now. You you throw it over to me like like like, like a, a lord throwing throwing a bone to a faithful hound. That's what I am. I'm not a northern sidekick. I'm a faithful hound. You throw me these little nuggets and my little northern tail starts wagging. That's not a euphemism. Um, actually, there's a couple of things that I'd like to, you know, bring up first, Blue. And the, the first thing is that, is that back in the day when we started this, you know, when God was a lad all of about, you know, seven or eight months ago, we had a very careful structure where we would alternate between you and I having a chat about a topic of interest one week and then a, a guest coming on and, and illuminating um, our podcast. It now seems like we have more guests than us having a chat. Is that because we're actually quite boring when it's just me and you? I think, Pete, I think people could very easily have their fill of me and you. There is a level of in-group, in-joke humour and silliness that is probably quite unique to us. In that terrible phrase that's that's so dangerous at the moment, somewhat exclusive. People people like the Spaniel thing. They like the Spaniel thing. I was just sitting there and listening, what the hell is he talking about? He's trying to teach the Spaniel to play football. That's idiotic. Everybody knows it's German Shepherds that play football. At some point, we are going to have to go back to you and me just talking nonsense and being silly. What you're essentially saying is that if it is just you and I talking nonsense and being silly, we, we very quickly saturate our market. Quite possibly. Um, but there are also lots and lots of interesting people out there seem to want to talk to us. I find that amazing. It's like, what well, you know, they could go and talk to proper people instead. Probably they could go and talk to proper people. But it's got to be said... There is there is a shortage of proper people who want to talk about rowing, and the proper people who are employed to talk about rowing, uh, principally by the BBC, quite a lot of them don't know very much about rowing. I mean, literally, and I think what it comes down to, people love having a matter about rowing and related topics. Like, like Spaniels who play football when everyone knows that it's actually German shepherds who do. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we obviously know Patricia Carswell. And because I, I, I threw up, and I use that word very deliberately, I threw up a little snippet of me singing and playing a tune about rowing and rowing life. She's suggested that um, I, we start doing a cover version on our releases, and she's requested a Taylor Swift tune. Can we just, I mean, is that something that we'd ever consider becoming, like a, like a jukebox request? Loon and Aaron singing and playing at you? I, I think, right, okay, I think this is entirely reasonable, but only if we change the lyrics to old Top of the Pots lyrics. Oh, like Thames Tradesmen do sometimes? Yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. It's like when the strong guy in the middle of the boat skies it on the start, it's just like, you've got to turn around and say, look what you made me do. You know, we, we have a, a small but select audience and, and it's it's quality, not quantity. But I have a feeling that, that while the occasional snippet of me singing in a folky and endearing way might might occasionally go down all right, if you and I just start singing at people randomly um, from this podcast, we're going to lose that select audience quite quickly, I would think. Possibly, but, you know, if we get the lyrics right, it'll be okay. We'll, we'll file it away for future um, for future pods, of which we have a host coming. But today, very lucky to be joined by a very special guest. We are joined by Sally Kettle. 
I, I, I personally think it's going to be a challenge for you to say a little bit about the wonders of Sally Kessel because there are quite a lot of them. There is a lot to say. She's one of these people who has done, you know, we were talking about interesting people wanting to come and have a chat. There we go. If the maxim for a life, by the time you get to the end of it, is that you have lived it fully and well and you have tried everything on the menu at least once and sometimes twice, Sally has crammed more into her life and there's still there's still decades and eons of it to go. She is an inspirational speaker. She is a, an adventurous. She is an event host. She's a television presenter. She's an author of Sally's Odd at Sea, uh, which is a, a wonderful pun there. She is the first woman to row the Atlantic twice from east to west. And on one occasion, she did that row with her mum. Now, we know that James and Ben have rowed the Atlantic. I'm not going to say which one of them was the mum in that partnership. But quite frankly, after talking to Sally, I think that they were just a bunch of chances who turned up in the boat and pissed about. This is the real deal. She was attacked by sharks. She was attacked by hurricanes, although how inanimate entities can attack you. She's had broken body parts. And she was quite wonderful when we got to talk to her a little while ago about the importance of managing your risk, about, about how these experiences can shape you and reshape you and can change your life, the need to face your fears, the need to adapt to change, to develop resilience and to live a full and rich emotional, physical and outward looking life. She was fantastic. She was genuinely, I mean, we, we've got to remember, so normally we have people on who will talk about the minutiae of our, we're expanding the scope here. One of the things that Sally likes to call herself, and I think with full justification, is an adventuress. And she is, she has had many adventures. I imagine she will have a few more. If there is any justice in the world, she will probably be doing these in front of a well-paid camera crew um, but as we know, there's no justice in the world, which is, you know, why James Cranwell is more famous than Matt Landridge. But there you go. Um, did I say that out loud? I did. Never mind. Call the lawyers again. We're going to, <laughs> we're going to court. God, at least we're making a lawyer richer. Um, yes. So this episode, we are joined by the wonderful Sally Kettle. In Sally's case, when we came to edit, we didn't actually want to lose anything of what she was talking about. So this is going to be a Broken Oars first. This is going to be our first two-part interview. And this is this is part one. And it's it's well worth a listen. It's wonderful stuff. It's an absolute blinder. Today, for another Broken Oars podcast interview, we have with us Sally Kettle, ocean rower, author, presenter, charity worker and charity founder unless i miss my guess we're not going to be short of things to talk to you about but i don't know maybe you could sort of just give us a little potted history of who you are what you do now how you got into rowing and where it's led you Okay, not that much to talk about in yeah, Lewin, 10 seconds, off you go. Okay. Lewin likes to do that, he just says, give us a brief history of everything from the moment you first drew breath till the point you in front of a microphone with us. No, that's, no, it's all good, I, I can do this. Right, are you ready? On your marks, get set, go. Get set. Hi, I'm um, Sally Kettle, I am a two-time Atlantic Ocean rower. Um, the first time I rode with my mum, the second time I went with three of the girls. We started as a three, um, as a four, ended as a three in the worst weather in the Atlantic for nearly 200 years, but that's a story I'm sure 
sure I can tell a bit later. Um, I came into rowing through ocean rowing, um, thought it was probably a good idea to learn how to row. <laughs> so um, I don't have a background in, in, in rowing, I certainly didn't do it at school. Um, I come from um, Tamworth originally, um, 10 years there, 10 years in Northampton, 10 year Brighton, and now coming to the end of my just over 10 years in Kingston. And um, um, after rowing, I pursued a career which sounds so, can I say wanky now, but I was a professional adventurer for 15 years and um, had a whale of a time, uh, went on several expeditions and um, yeah, spoke about it, wrote a book about ocean rowing and um, then had a child and all of that came to a staggering halt <laughs> as, as, it, as it tends to do when you when you give birth to a almost 10 pound baby um, for lots of different reasons so yeah that's that's kind of my potted history and I've just launched um, actually with Hayley who is well known to one of the podcasters here um, uh, a charity called the Active Pregnancy Foundation over lockdown and I got myself a job which is a proper job a proper job <laughs> um, with a, a mental health charity also over lockdown so in lots of ways um, I'm incredibly grateful to be working right now that was like that was a sprint that was a lot of <laughs> that was good right <laughs> yeah that was this this is a lady who's done this before you've, you've obviously had to Lewin, do you want to kick off? Because I'll, I'll just say something inane, because I usually do, and it'll be something like, so, were you super sporty at school, and did that lead you towards the Atlantic? No, Have you got you a better one, Lou? No, you completely asked me that question. Actually, I was one of the, you know, do, 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 did you ever have the person in the class who really wanted to be, and they were more enthusiastic than capable? Yeah, that was me. <laughs> that was me, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I used to get so excited about playing netball that whenever we went into a match, I would literally fall over my own feet within the first two minutes and then be the one with the bloody socks. <laughs> but I mean, it used to, I really, really wanted to be sporty and I wanted to be way more athletic and have way more ability than I ever actually possessed. But I did, I did, what, one thing I did discover was that if I wanted to do something, then I would work really bloody hard to do it. And at one point at school, I would go into the gym every lunch for I think um, about a year and uh, throw hoops, just hoops kind of constantly scoring goals, scoring goals until I was able to consistently throw um, a netball from the center circle and land it um, in the basket, you know, nine times out of 10. You worked out pretty quickly that, that if there was something you wanted to do, the best way to do it was to crack on with it. Yeah. 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 And commit. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so, strictly speaking, that works for rowing. That's like, that is the absolute way forward. It, it's something that's been bouncing around um, rowing Twitter for the past couple of days is, is one of our bitter, bitter rivals, Patricia Carswell. Um, who also has her own rowing po podcast. She asked this question. Um, she's lovely. She's absolutely lovely. Um, she asked this question, sort of how many people who sort of came into rowing as adulthood were just like anti-sporty as kids? And I was kind of one of the weird ones when I just said, no, I, I was doing everything. I was just doing basketball and tennis and squash and climbing and all these things. Um, so I always kind of love sport. I, I entirely recognize two parts of what you said mm. of always wanting to be better than I was. There's nothing I was particularly naturally talented at, 
being prepared to just like work and work and work at things. And I did exactly the same thing going into the gym at lunchtime and just shooting hoops, shooting hoops. The difference was I, for the life of me, I could never accurately score from the free throw line. I, I, I'm, I'm quite good at jumping and like when I'm fairly close to it, I can get it in, but it's just like actually shooting from any kind of distance. I'm hopeless at, absolutely shocking. Um, He's quite good at jumping because he's seven foot eight tall. He doesn't actually have to get particularly <laughs> far off the four. ground to put a hoop through. I'm, I'm, I'm merely, merely in the 98th percentile. It's not that yeah. impressive for really. So Loon um, was freakishly gifted at school. I was an enthusiastic trier until my growth spurt arrived about 10 years after it was supposed to. And then I, I worked my way to rowing. But um, yeah, Loon's one of those talented buggers who's good at a lot of things. I know. I, I, I definitely think there is something to be said, though, for um, going to a girls' school. You know, kind of bringing it back to motivations for being um, sporty. Because when we were in a girls' school, sport was expected of us, and there wasn't the barriers to sport that I think there is for lots of young women, especially within mixed education, where perhaps they feel embarrassed, they don't want to get sweaty. That you know, and and much as it sounds kind of trite, I work with the girl guys as ambassador and they do a lot of work around, you know, girls' opinions and views. And, you know, a big part of one of the reasons why they don't participate in, in sport and activity when they're in their teens is because of the uncertainty and anxiety of, of being sweaty, not looking great. You know, they don't want to kind of make a fool of themselves in front of their peers. And so, you know, I, I think single sex education really supported me in, in my ambitions to want to stay active and that was really 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 important and, and I, I kind of get a sense as somebody who went to a girls school who didn't do rowing but I suspect lots of uh, kind of private educated people tend to come across rowing because it's available and, and, and it's not that available to you know to state education educated kids it just isn't. Yeah. I think it's a, I think it's a really important point about uh, as children grow because when they're when they're young as as uh, Lewins are and mine are at the moment, they will try anything without without fear. Uh, but there is that thing as you kind of grow up and peer pressure and suddenly being aware of your body and being aware of what other people might think can might put a real kind of crimp in that. Good to know that you didn't face that pressure possibly because you because of the environment that you were in. Whereas in a mixed education, my daughter who is nine recently discovered that boys who used to play with her all the way through from nursery now won't because she's a girl, even though she's the same girl that, that she was, you know, at the start of the term before it's because they've reached that age where suddenly I'm a boy. I play with boys. I don't play with girls because of, because of, um, because boys don't play with girls at, at, at this age. And I'm trying to tell her that at some point in about four or five years' time, that they'll get very interested in her and, and I'll have to get the shotgun out. Um, <laughs> but it's still, she's still getting her head around it. And that's the first kind of intimations of being conscious that she's different or might be looked at differently. Yeah. And is it, 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 we, it, some, for some reason, we societally disable young women from participating in activity in sport. And we've got to get our heads around that and make make inroads into changing that and doing better, um, because it just takes such a long time for women, young women who are into being active, to re-engage again if they've disengaged in their teenage years. 
Yeah, if if they if they need that, to get so drum bangy on and and bra bra kind of burning, but um, you know it's something it's no, something that I'm kind of in in at the moment. Bang drums about it definitely because the 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 thing is you can you can step away from it in your teenage years and you might come back to it, but I think that that young girls and young ladies probably probably more step away from it and don't come back to it than who actually do, um, and that's a real shame. Yeah. Do you, do you think it's like important that sport itself, as in like traditional sports, are the vector of activity, or is it just activity and games and dance? Is I think it's it's a blend, um, isn't it? It's a blend, you know, cause, because because I, you know, I was like, I'm a naturally competitive person, and I, you know, anybody who gets into sport and enjoys it have it has natural competitiveness about them and that's one of the reasons why they want to do it right and they want and for those who want to be in teams they want to play in a team and that's the you know the joy of doing that you know it, it doesn't have to be one or the other but I think there needs to be you know more facilities for young people who who aren't as competitive and aren't as um, sporty because that can put them off but you know it's a lot to ask isn't it of, um, of schools in particular really to kind of provide that but I, I just I, I just remember you know we had pretty much sports or, or, uh, or PE every other day at school I, I just mm. I just don't know what they're doing now you've got older kids than me um, but um, you know is, is, are they playing as much as we used to when we were kids? Um, so, no is the it i mean yeah. so certainly i mean sort of like my daughter's eight years old my son's five and we can't really stop him from doing whatever he wants so yeah like, <laughs> my four-year-old's the same <laughs> his, his latest his his best game at the moment which i think he's probably turning into a sport which is going to be trouble for me if it's like goes international is running up behind me smacking me on the bum and then running away <laughs> And so if that if that turns into a sport, I'm probably going to be in a lot of trouble. El, El, Elsa will Elsa will give anything a go, but she doesn't. You know, she has PE, and I think there's like yoga class, and that there's various kind of different things. So there's like a little tennis club down the hill from where she does, and we sort of like get her into that when we can. I, but, think, I, think, I think to come back to Sally's point about schools and and engagement. I come from a, a large family of teachers uh, in, in the Northeast who all said, whatever you do, don't become a teacher, which was, I thought was exceptional advice. But they, I remember when I went to school, because obviously this was back when God was allowed, because I'm, I'm ancient. Most of my family taught in the school that I went to, which was St. Thomas More's um, in Bladen. And my uncle was head of house. And as well as being a, a geography teacher, he would, he took all of the football teams, all of the cricket teams, the rugby and the cross country and organized the inter-house events. And there just seemed to be, he having chatted with him, there was, because there was less admin and there was less pressure on teachers to be filling out forms, he had the time and the space and the headroom to do these, these extracurricular activities. I remember that we, we did something pretty much every day, even though it was only mandated that, you know, you, you got two lessons in, in PE week or whatever. And, and as the, all my family talk about as the admin and the pressure ramped up the extracurricular activities and the scope to be able to do them narrowed down to the point where, where kids are now only maybe getting the mandated sessions as opposed to the, the extra lunchtime or the after school stuff that they might have previously done. Yeah. 
I think, and and I just remember not long after I left school that almost the wholesale selling of, of sports fields and, and school yeah. Um, and I, I, I don't, I, to be honest with you, I don't know what, you know, what the situation is now, but the, I'm going to say something that I think may be really quite controversial, but I'm going to say it anyway. And that is, I think there's, what's important about sport is it gives you the tools to release aggression and get things almost kind of physically off your chest um, and then leave it on the field. And I think we're doing a disservice to women specifically by not enabling them to do that. Because, it, you know, if we are concentrating our sporting talents in, in, on the male side of things, they can go on to the rugby pitch, they can kind of get their aggression out, they can belt their mate or whatever, and they come off and they're back in the, uh, in the changing rooms and they're giving each other a rug and, it, and it's all done. It's yeah. done. And I, I, I think that's an important tool for you know, a, a, a part of your toolkit as you go off into the working world is to be able to know when you're on the field and when you're not. Uh, you know, and that's something that I certainly learnt from being from playing sport. Were you as well as competitive? Were you quite feisty in other areas? Did the competitions did the competition spill out in other areas? But then you kind of focused it on on the pitch sort of thing, or. Um, I think probably I am quite feisty. <laughs> I'm very opinionated. I think my parents would definitely say I was that. And also, I, I, I did ask my dad a few years ago, I said, do you think I had ADHD? And he raised one eyebrow. <laughs> you know, I, I had a lot of energy and it needs to be spent somewhere. Yeah, I can't, I can't quite remember your question. But yes, yeah, um, yeah I, need, I, I needed sport and needed activity yeah yeah absolutely and actually looking back at it now there's you know there's a part of me that actually regrets not having a more kind of active career when i say that what i mean is i wish i could have danced or something like that in which you use your body all the time mm. you know i i have so much pent-up energy that i almost need it to be released constantly and this lockdown in particular i'm finding really really difficult i found it tough in summer but i'm finding it even tougher now you know i'm kind of going to to bed with so much tension in my body because i've got so much energy to expend um yeah. and one hour a day is just not enough for me no it doesn't it, it doesn't burn it off does it did, did no. you find that your that your interests sustained and translated them through your through your teenage years uh, did, did you reach a point where you disengaged or did you always have that focus i had when i say focus it probably wasn't focused it was scattergun <laughs> i have i've had a very scattergun career um and interestingly um i wouldn't change it one little bit um you know i i was i was never going to be a person who sat at a desk what's fascinating is that is my entire world right now <laughs> but at the time I, I i couldn't have done it in fact i did a theater degree which i absolutely adored and i and i really excelled at it and i and i loved it and i walked away with the first and it was really um exciting and and it really helped me to kind of expend my creative talents as well as talk to people and engage them in ideas that were wild and wacky and crazy i spent my degree 
um, my final degree show in a laundrette making a dress out of lint and sewing it together with my own hair. So I was getting the lint out of the tumble dryers and sewing it together and, and kind of engaging with the community and people would come in and buy me chocolates and we'd talk about that and they'd even come in and ask me to repair their trousers. <laughs> I'm like, Actually, I'm kind of doing a third show. But it was, um, so that was really interesting, exciting. And um, I was constantly looking for, I, I've always had a real sense, even from a small child, and it's interesting watching my four-year-old actually and seeing her development, but that, that this is it. This is all we have, right? This is, this is it. And um, I kind of wanted to wring life dry, just wring it dry. And, um, and again, that's one of the things that I'm finding really tough with the, the lockdown um, is, is that, you know, this is time a-wasting. So, something Aaron said is that the forestry commission are hiring and it's just like I really like the idea personally of just like having a job where you go into a forest with a chainsaw and a spade and, and yeah literally just like right we're going to cut down those trees we're going to haul them onto a truck and drive them away um, I, I just think that'd be brilliant that'd be just I don't know I'm not sure it pays very much um, because I think a lot of people want to do that job. Yes. <laughs> I mean, um, I, I, I once worked in a place where they had a, um, where they were all getting made redundant in another department and they were all scientists and they all worked eight hours a day in a lab with windows that only looked out inside the building because it was like they, they were in the posh high security bit. And that they had like a redundancy consultant come in and say, so draw a picture of your ideal working environment. And all <laughs> of them drew a forest. Every last one of them wanted to work outside with trees and rivers and like the earth. And it's just like, yeah, I kind of get where they're coming from. Um, it would be kind of cool. I mean, I, I actually working with kids is brilliant and frustrating but you've only actually yeah. ever mentioned the last bit of that the frustrating bit you've never said <laughs> the brilliant bit before to me no, it, it, or do you it, just it ring me to bed you're never bored but it, it's like all the other stuff that that goes with being a teacher which is yeah there's a lot of filling out forms and you know what, it's something sure. i wanted to do i always wanted to teach yeah. I, mean, I always wanted to teach. I have all my teddies and, and dollies lined up. I take register and everything. And I'm, I'm sort of really glad that I didn't go into the profession. I mean, I, I kind of teach in different ways. And I did actually do one whole day of teaching um, you know, around the ocean rowing story, really. And I had one class of the other after the other. And I have to say, <laughs> I take my hat off to teachers. <laughs> oh my until God. You, so All those people who say, oh, they get 11 weeks holiday a year. It's so easy. Da -da -da -da, until you've actually done it, it's, it's a killer. It is a killer. It's energy out constant, constantly. Yeah. You, you get used to it after the first seven years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, to, to get back on subject, like some, something vaguely to do with, with rowing and, and sport, not alternative careers, but how, how did you ever get the idea of just like saying, because I'm a rower, I know about ocean rowing, I've heard about ocean rowing. The first club I went to in Norwich, they had a guy who'd rowed across the Atlantic 
and there was a pub in Norwich and his boat oh, was stationed. Sorry? Tiny Little. Yeah. Yes, I know Tiny. Oh, uh, yeah. And world, so, yeah, I know Tiny. And... Ocean Rowers, Lewin, they, 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 they're on first name terms with one another. She probably... <laughs> no, 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 practice. They probably are. There are not that many people who've done it. But even then, I was just like, no, I don't want to do that. No, I'll tell you why. Shall I tell you what it is? Ocean rowing is not about rowing. It is not about rowing. And, okay. Um, and I think actually having never rowed when I decided to do it um, set me in good stead because I, I kind of thought, well, I actually thought in my naivety, because it was my, my boyfriend at the time who suggested it, um, we didn't end up going across together. He had epilepsy and he had a seizure um, four days in. We ended up coming back and I ended up taking my mum. But um, um, when I when he first suggested it, I honestly thought it was like those little wooden little boats that you go, you hire out on a boat. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm well up for that. Oh yeah, I'll definitely do that. <laughs> but it's a funny thing because it was, it was one of those, it, I don't know if you've ever had this in life, but you, you kind of decide on something and it's just snowballs. It just seems to happen, even though it's hard work and you're up against it and you think it's going to fail in it, but somehow it just keeps gaining momentum. And that's exactly what it did. And, but, but I think it was just a pure combination of lots of things happening at the same time. It was the, you know, the perfect, the perfect storm, <laughs> you know, it was opportunity and inspiration and, and bloody sheer hard work all kind of came together. Um, and and if, you, if you're thinking that you're gonna get in a rowing boat and row, it doesn't, it's not, it isn't like that. You know, you, you, you just get in the rowing boat and hope you get your oar in the water occasionally. You know, it's really, really difficult. And I, I actually learned um, in a coastal rowing boat um, and even that was nothing like ocean rowing. Sorry, there's so much to unpick there. When you say your, your, your ex-partner suggested it, was it a casual, what shall we have for lunch? I quite fancy lasagna. There's some salad in the fridge. Do you fancy rowing across the Atlantic? Or was there like a lead up to it? There was, I'd, um, I'd done the London Marathon. I was going through a bit of an existential crisis, actually. So I suppose, you know, what I think what's quite important here is maybe to just cover off really quickly that I had an eating disorder in my teens and um, I know many young women do. Um, I had a very bad negative relationship with my own body. And so I saw exercise as a means to losing weight. Um, so when I did the marathon, it was not an exercise in, in doing the marathon. It was, how can I get skinny? Um, and then I, once I'd done it, I got into a panic because I thought, well, then I'm just now going to gain loads of weight again. And then, you know, what am I going to, what, what the hell am I going to do next? Right. And so it was all about control. Um, and I suggested to Tomo, my boyfriend at the time, why don't we um, cycle from Lands into John O'Groats? And he said, I'm going to go with my, my best friend. You know, you can't come. And he'd, and unknown to me, he'd heard about ocean rowing on, on, on the news some time back or on the radio and said why don't we row the Atlantic instead and and the sheer kind of feeling of I need something to happen in my life right now I just finished my degree I actually wasn't that enamored by my boyfriend really um it was a quarter life crisis it was um I didn't have a great job I didn't have a great boyfriend I didn't have a great relationship with my body I didn't know what the 
think I was going to do with the rest of my life. I needed something to happen pretty you, major. You needed, you needed something to change. Something. Yeah, you need yeah, something. Yeah, a massive change. I need, yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, having spoken to a lot of people um, about their reasons, the psychology behind choosing to do something that's so monumentally what's seen as dangerous and, um, you know, huge is, is not, not always for positive reasons. And that can actually be a huge motivator mm. to one, take part and two, complete. Uh, and that shouldn't actually be seen as a bad thing. You know, the, you know, the one, the thing that's going to come out of lockdown is that actually it's going to massively motivate people to do some extraordinary stuff. It's going to be hugely motivating yeah. because we've all been compressed and suddenly there's going to be the release of the cork and the poof, right. And things are going to happen. It's going to be really exciting time when this is, you know, kind of coming out the other end. And, um, and so I, I, you know, I have had this, somebody tell me this phrase and it was happy people don't climb mountains. And that really resonated with me massively. Yeah. Um, and um, it just, it worked, it totally worked. Um, and it was extraordinarily successful, um, even though I ended up going with my mum. Once all of this had built up to a head, it had built to a head and you'd gone, we're going for it. You must have then Googled, you know, Atlantic rowing and read about it. And, and the reason I, I asked that is because we, we rode the length of the Thames a few years ago. It's only a mere 150 miles with nothing large that's going to eat us in it. I mean, the, you know, the, 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 the kingfishers below Buscot Lock can get pretty fierce, but none of us are going to lose a leg at, at any point. And I suggested the trip to the guys and they all went, yes, that sounds like a great idea. Ben, who is like a, 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 a natural source of optimism, went, well, why don't we just do the Atlantic as well? And we went, well, I suppose we could, you know, Crackle and Fogel have done it. You know, we could take a look at it. And then we saw 40-foot waves and 40-mile-an-hour yeah. winds and there's sharks and there's tankers that run you down and you might die. And it's like, no, the Thames is fine. The Thames will be no, okay. Well, it's because you'd already set your your sights on on the race, right? So, you'd, so it's almost as if, you know... Um, I did a lot of running for a very long time and um, you always run the race that you're running. So if you are doing 5k or you're doing 25 miles, it makes no odds really. You were always going to feel like it's like, oh my God, this is so hard. But by the time you get to the end of it, yeah. <laughs> it makes no sense, right? So you'd already in your own mind decided that you were going to do the Thames. That was it, right? You, you could yeah. see the distance and now it, you know, and it was flat and it was kind of, it was hard, but now you see the Atlantic and that was the comparison between your 5k and your 25k, right? And it's, yeah. it's a massive difference. And so I didn't see the short distance. There was nothing in, I hadn't decided, oh, maybe we might go and row across the channel and then consider going across the Atlantic. It was the Atlantic first. That, you know, that was it. There was no shorter distance. I committed to doing that and I was determined to do it. And, and, and that determination and that, and that wanting not to fail was a huge driving force and, and probably the force that kind of got me across. Do not fail, especially once right. I've told everybody. <laughs> can, can we, just... we, found, we found that once we decided to do it, it just sort of happened and a lot of things then just came together at the last minute that we needed to come together at the last minute. Yeah. Having read Crackle and Fogel's book, it, it looks like they basically rocked up 
completely unprepared for their row and then bicker their way across the Atlantic. Um, yeah. What actually goes into, well, I'm glad it's not just me who took that from, you know, as a professional. I'm not, they were in the I same race as yeah, us. I know I they turned it. up completely. No, we were painting their boat on, yeah. the, on the hard standing. Um, a man who prepared <laughs> meticulously for his Olympic gold medals then decided to row 3,000 miles in a pair of shorts and not even knowing if he had a boat or not. Um, th there must be a huge amount of work, though, that goes into, you know, I've said it's going to happen, which means it will happen, but you still have to go through what did you actually have to do to get on the start line? And then you had your partner had an um, epilepsy uh, attack about four days in, and then your mum came on board. Can you, could you talk a little bit about what's required for a race like that? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, um, I, I mean, I did it some years ago now, nearly you know, 15 years ago, and it was, it's very different from the races that happen now. It's really professionalised. I mean, I'd like to say we did it with sextants and oil skins, darling. You know, <laughs> we had a fishing Celestial navigation and all the rest of it, yeah. And in a way, kind of in comparison to what it is now, that's kind of how it felt like, you know. When my mum and I did it, only um, 16 women had ever attempted an ocean row before us in the world, you know. So, you know, it was it was... It was massively in its influence, uh, in its infancy, and it was a real. You know, you knew everybody within ocean rowing. So when you know when we decided when I yeah we are, when we decided to do it to me it was a really simple combination and that is, you know, learn how to row, buy yourself a boat, put the stuff in it, and then go. I mean, if that and it and it and it, it is it is that simple and that complex, you know. Um, and it's a, it's a kind of, if you know where your kind of little kind of touch points are, is like, you know, you've got to raise the money to buy the boat. You know, that, that can be as complicated or as, as you want it to be. But, you know, I, I kind of thought, well, I've got the time to go out and create relationships with people to enable us to, to raise the money. And lots of people don't have that time. So they end up investing their own money in it, which I think is always nearly always a mistake. But um yeah so you know and then and and it literally is one tiny little step along the way you know go and get yourself a astro navigation course um learn how to um you know kind of do your charts and your gps and learn how to row i mean it is incredibly simple and it's the simplicity of it which is for me one of the beauties of ocean rowing and one of the things i miss a lot actually is that it is an extremely simple existence. You know, you, there's there's no worrying about tax returns. There's no, <laughs> you know, there's no worrying about career. There's no worries. There's the, none of that kind of chatter that's constantly going in society. And and one of the things that I truly loved about rowing and um, that I didn't appreciate until I was out there, and as somebody who had severe issues with her self-esteem and confidence and, and her you know her body is that you are not bombarded by visual images all the time you know there's no billboards there's no um instagram there's no twitter there's no there's nothing there's barely there's no, there's not even a mirror if you don't wish to, to take it you are just yourself in that present moment and 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 there's there's beauty in that there really is beauty in that I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. <laughs> it's like really, really hard. And, you know, you spend a lot of time kind of in, it's, a, it's also a, you know, a lesson in pain management. You're in pain a lot. 
um, you know, you're, I got sciatica the first time really bad. You've got blisters on your hands, you get tendonitis, um, you, you lose a lot of weight, so you're rubbing on bones. You know, it's, it's a lesson in pain and boredom. Um, but there is, and, and it's, um, the ocean is a perfect metaphor really for, you know, you know life. And it's just, it, you know, I kind of, I think nowadays I, I try to remember back to the, the really tough start stuff, but actually most of the time I think of the beauty of it, the whales, the flying fish, the, the sea life, the, the stars, the moon, the, you know, the, spe the spectacular nighttime, bloody um, shooting stars and phosphorescence and whale visits and you know it was just just a joy um, to be honest when you put it like that you're the first person who's actually even vaguely tempted me to say oh yeah let's just like go out because I kind of look at it and just think I, 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 I well partly I think it's very very boring but also it's just it goes on for a very long time. Yeah. Um, because, you know, how, how long did it take you to get across the Atlantic the first time? Four months. To be honest, I didn't row down the Thames with Aaron because, you know, I think I said to him, how long is it going to take? So oh, it's about four or five days. It's like, that's, that's, that's four or five minutes I like. That, that, that's good. The whole four or five days was going to be, that was just going to be long and pain, painful. I'm, I'm not very, actually very good at sitting down in a rowing boat, I, I get really kind of cramped and sort of... But Which was a real hindrance in his career, the fact that he didn't actually ever like being in a boat for more than five minutes at a time. <laughs> but that means you kind of like you row faster to get to the end. <laughs> um, okay, you joke about this, but it's like, it was one of the sort of like things that I had in training and I used to tell people this. It's just like, there are two types of pain when you're doing any form of training or any form of race, there is the pain of just sitting in this very, very small, hard, uncomfortable seat with your feet strapped into it, whether you're on a rowing machine, whether you're in a boat, and then there is the pain of pushing yourself along. And I always found almost universally, the pain of pushing myself along was a lot less than the pain of sitting there. So, you know, particularly when we're doing long training pieces, I would just push harder just to make them finish. I would like literally calculate the number of seconds I wouldn't have to sit on the seat if I just went one second per 500 meter faster. And, and sort of like playing loads of stupid games like that in my head. And the idea of having to do that for four months, I, I just couldn't manage it. Um, I really couldn't. You didn't think it was going to take that long. <laughs> After the first six months, six weeks yeah. or so, you're just like, well, we're out here. We may as well keep going. Oh, I know. Well, this is it. You kind of let you know. You get, it, there is, there is hugely frustrating. And, and it's one, it's one of the things that you kind of have to learn to accept. And that is, you can only go as fast as you can go. And that is yes. a hard lesson to learn really really is i mean um, you know my mum and i were rowing a one-ton boat you know it's a and my mum's a gardener she'd had two months training she didn't actually the first time she actually rowed the boat was three days before we left so you know kind of, we, we were and the thing is we never went in with any ambitions to be fast or to win you know we just wanted to get across 
and that and that was it and actually what I think surprised us both is that when we got to the end we didn't want to get off the boat and then when we did get off the boat and we saw one of the guys who'd rowed on his own he got back on his to row to Cuba we were like yeah we miss that boat we really miss it you don't can, appreciate it until you finish it I can completely it sounds ridiculous but even after doing something as simple as the length of the Thames from source to sea I can completely relate because when we got to the where we had to get off there was about 30 seconds where we looked at each other and went you know what if it's a flat day we could be across the channel we could go up the Saints Paris we could call our partners they could meet us there I didn't I didn't want to, I just could have stayed in that boat forever it was just it simplified existence so much but I think that's the the difference between Lewin and I is he's he's intensely competitive and wants to go quickly which so that would probably drive him wild the the Atlantic would drive him wild whereas I would just go right no no instagram no twitter no social media no email no constant bombardment just just wake up every day and yes there probably would be moments of intense boredom and monotony and terror and all of those things but i feel like it would act as a complete reset for your mental health and the way you view yourself did any of that come out yeah yeah absolutely and and you've got to go through it you know you've got absolutely got to go through those emotions you know you have to feel the ups and downs of it you cannot shield yourself from those experiences you have to embrace them for all their glory and hideousness you know the weeping the you know the grief of being out there and missing everybody and then the elation of seeing the the um the whales and, and everything and it's only now that um, i'm working with the mental health um charity that you kind of really sort of appreciate the value of those experiences and how it really has helped me build my resilience and you know and also realizing why i struggled at some of those times and, and kind of and why we as as a as a nation you know, a global nation i suppose are struggling with this situation right now is that we have so much expectation you know we are hoping constantly and the one thing my mother taught me on my row was that um we had this phrase called no hope on the boat you know she said she said to me you know stop hoping all the time because we we're going the wrong way and it was taking so long and she goes stop hoping all the time it doesn't help because it's expecting something or somebody to intervene you know there's an expectation that you're going to achieve more than you probably can and actually to sort of let that all go and just take the day as it is and how it comes you know and just accept the emotions that come with it and to let go of that hope um and and it's a it's a it, it's a difficult one to describe to people and it's something that i've been extolling in my talks over the last 15 years is this kind of hopeless life um, and people really hold on to it but actually in the long term i think it can be quite damaging because it's not seeing life as it is it's how you want it to be and you know expectation is the mother of disappointment you're hoping that something external will come along and move the course of your life to where you want it to go whereas you you're you're not talking about hopelessness as in giving up you're talking about no. being in complete surrender to the moment controlling what you can control but letting go of everything else yes. because we, you can't, we yeah. yeah you can't battle the ocean you cannot battle the ocean but you can still fucking cross it excuse my language you know what i mean you can still grow it you can still achieve your goal but it might not be exactly as you wanted it to be that's okay 
you know, and, and to take the value from the lessons that you actually learned then rather than the ones that you, you wanted to, you know, wanted to learn or things that you wanted to achieve, you know, on the second one, that was a massive lesson because I'd gone with, you know, cause I hadn't learned all that from the, from the first one, you know, my mum had said no hope on the boat and I got into the second race, you know, with every expectation that we were going to win, that we were going to have uh, a world record, that we were going to be the first women's four, and it was an absolutely unmitigated bloody disaster. One of the girls got off. We were hit by the tail end of a hurricane, two tropical storms. We lost our rudder. We were attacked by a shark. You know, it was mentally and physically the toughest thing I've ever done. And it was horrific at times, just horrific. And, um, you know, it took me a long time to realize the value of that, that trip and to, you know, appreciate that, um, we got across alive and that was enough <laughs> you know that was enough um you, sorry I, I was just thinking do you think that that kind of existential hardship is almost a is something that me and Aaron were talking about on like another pod that we recorded but in the modern world where you don't have those those challenges yeah. unless you create them for you do you think that that kind of existential challenge and hardship is a necessary inoculation against that kind of i'm not erin you're gonna to have to correct me here if i'm not saying this right but anyway and sort of despair that we seem to see sometimes in the modern world yeah but so my 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 view is that we have created a society where we've taken away risk and um rites of passage and you know it we saw that that young people were sent on rites of passage. You know, boys were sent off into the bush. You know, and 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 certainly women's rites of passage have been completely. You know, in society, have been they've been stripped bare of any sort of um, kind of opportunity to really test themselves. And we and we absolutely need that for our young people. And and I think that's one of the reasons why things was that it was so successful for me because I was in my 20s when I did it and I think you know it's in that time that you know we we should take those opportunities to have a rite of rite of passage um a physical and a mental and emotional one and I know that young people do that through things like D of E and and uh, and stuff like that and through guiding and scouting quite a lot of that and I know Bear Grylls who I can't I can't stand but <laughs> But you know, he talks about taking risks all the time, and and it and it and it uh, it's kind of it hurts me when I hear people criticising how people are not coping very well with this situation. But I kind of think, well, how can you how can you weather a hurricane if you've never weathered a storm, right? You know, this is this is a hurricane for some people, for some people, and they just haven't had the um the testing to to previously to be able to to deal with it but in lots of ways this is the testing so that you know if they can get through this they can get through the next challenge and there will always be challenges and and actually this is resilience building um, mm. and resilience building is not not acknowledging that how difficult it is it's knowing it's difficult feeling it's difficult being in this place and surviving it and coming out the other side do you think there is a way that we can find a sweet spot between risk of, you know, death and dismemberment um, and challenge 
that is a sensible and healthy one. I mean, a bit, I'm, I'm asking this because as a rower in a school, I kind of, I see kids, particularly during rugby season, walking around on crutches. Now, there are 800 people in, in, in school. And so if you see like one or two kids who've like had an accident on the rugby field and half the time they've like slipped over just because they don't have very good grips on their shoes. It's not necessarily that much of a big deal, but I do kind of think should kids really be sort of popping their knee in any sport they do that doesn't happen in rowing. And people have said, no, that's, that's part of what they actually have to learn going through, getting injured, recovering from that. Um, I mean, is, is that part of where, you you see the process you know what i no i i, I oh, it's a, that is such a difficult question to answer i think it's a huge privilege it's the privilege of the of my white middle class upbringing i suppose that i was able to afford the time and the money and have the connections to allow me to go off and do the road and many people will not have that i mean it's a first world experience to go and seek out this expedition right what a what a privilege in comparison to what many people have to face in, in you know in, in different countries so um yeah much as i'd love to say oh yes you know go out and and put yourself against the elements i'm i'm not saying that what i'm what i'm saying is that we have to be accepting of our um, of our emotions, acknowledging that, that we have them and allowing them to process and, and happen and not to mollycoddle our young people and, and to, to say it's, it's, you know, not okay to be angry or, you know, to kind of shield them from experiences, you know, like shielding them from grief or shielding them from disappointment or shielding them from pain or torment or, you know, all these things that are needed to enable us to kind of you know, grow a thicker bark, really, you know, that, that is it. It's kind of giving people permission to feel their emotions, to acknowledge that they have them and give them tools to be able to manage them, or at least to kind of know that they're happening. And that's one of the things that I'm doing with my mental health team. And that is, you know, all the psychotherapists that I work with um, describe it as the weather. It's, it's not, it's not about kind of, trying to stop yourself from feeling things it's seeing there's a black cloud and it will pass and just having that black cloud and being okay that that you have that black cloud at that time um or you know in just acknowledging that we have these emotions and that it's okay to experience them and you can you can do that out in a difficult situation or you can do that in the home you know <laughs> there's, yeah. there's plenty of opportunity to feel these things uh, I mean, that, that strikes me as, as um, very similar to a book I haven't read, but I've, I've kind of read a lot about, which is Jonathan Haidt's The Coddling of the American Mind. Mm. And he comes up with this, I don't know if you've read it, but he comes up with this concept of, or he borrows the concept from Nicholas Tassim Taleb of anti-fragility. And he basically says that a wine glass is fragile, a plastic cup is robust, but people are actually anti-fragile. You ha they have to get knocks 
to allow them to get better. Yeah. That they, they respond positively to stress. And I, I think there are lots of examples with this, like kind of like immunity and not getting infections in your immune system going haywire and all kind of things like that. Um, what I'm really, really interested in is, is like how, how we find that balance between stress and, you know, a damage. positive stress. Yeah, stress <laughs> and, and damage. Yeah, yes, yeah, that, yeah. That, that, that's the thing. Sort of. And PTSD, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. literally. Do we traumatise our children because we know they're going to be resilient, you know? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> no, and... No, that is not the solution. But it's you have to... We just need to be more emotionally literate. And that illiteracy has to be taught to adults as well as kids. So that, you know, and um, it's... So that we all become more emotionally agile. Because we've, we've sort of created this world where everything we see is picture perfect, whether it's Instagram or Facebook or whatever. People put their best lives up there. Loon and I are old enough to know, you know, a time before this when, you know, life is, is not always perfect. You it was don't gray always... and dull and I didn't like it. I like Twitter. Yeah, you like Twitter. I, I know that's, that's why you do all of the snarky stuff on our Twitter feed. Um, it's not just me. You're horrible to Boris Johnson. He deserves it um, at the moment, and he needs a haircut and someone to tuck his shirt in for him. Definitely, Don't you you talk in there. What? <laughs> Listen, if you this is this is just a bad hair day. I don't I don't deliberately mess it up before I talk to important people like yourself to make me look rumpled, so that when I get a coherent sentence out, you think I've done well, which is what he does. I'm going to go and get a haircut now. I'll be back in a minute. I, I, I'm wondering though if. You touched on before about remembering the school playing fields being sold off uh, and those kind of things. And we've talked about teacher workloads increasing so they couldn't do the extracurricular stuff. And you mentioned that you had, because of your, your class, you had the opportunity to do the Atlantic Row. But my, my dad talks about, he, he's, you know, left school at 14, did an apprenticeship in a factory. He talks about going on outward bounds courses where they'd go climbing in Wales or they'd go they'd go sailing down in Devon and you know he ended up he ended up working offshore in the end but a lot of his basic kind of grounding and exposure was this kind of graded exposure to risk but that also gave you the tools to deal with it at the same time have we lost both those physical outlets but also the the emotional lessons they teach and I'm thinking about you mentioned the guides. My girls have both gone to rainbows and they've both gone to guides. And I've had, I've had snippy comments from people about it because it's seen as such a, the guides are seen as Enid Blyton and Jolly Hockey Sticks and scouts are seen as a, you know, a proto-imperialistic, you know, tool of molding boys into men and all of this kind of stuff. But firstly, they loved it and they got a huge amount out of it and it was highly socializing and they learned loads of, basic stuff that I learned in the same way and took for granted stuff about tying knots and basic first aid and, and what happens if you sprain your ankle. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I know. Yeah. And I find, I find it. So I, yeah, I, I, I get very upset when people get sniffy about the guides. Um, you know, I must admit when I was a guide, um, we did a lot of soap carving. <laughs> we, did, we handled a lot of imperial leather. Okay. <laughs> but you know, and we didn't, and we didn't have the, we didn't do the adventurous stuff that that, that the girls do now. It has changed a lot. Mm. And um, and you know what? Bog off. 
if the girls are enjoying it and they're enjoying their time there and they're learning tools for life, then who are you to criticize? If you don't want your kids to go, don't send them, you know, um, but uh, it gives girls such an opportunity to, mi to mix with different young women, you know, from different backgrounds, um, with different education, from different schools and in a safe space and and learn from you know different role models and 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 that 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 can only be of benefit and and this and it's the same with scouting you know mm. it, it it is just giving young people opportunities to experience different things and actually to be honest it also gives the parents time to do to have some time away from the kids and i mean we all need that right now so you know that i, I find that um, very annoying especially if they don't really know anything about it or they may have had a bad experience with it 20 years ago i, I know again, i'm i'm being judgy here but the one thing that i've learned over time is to is to is to stop being judgy you know you know the internet has enc encouraged judgyism and um and actually judgy being judgy only makes you about uh, you know a worse person <laughs> well that was the end of part one of our interview with the inimitable sally kettle and i think you're going to agree that that is a fairly incredible introduction into all the things a fairly incredible woman has fitted into her life so far this is actually something we've been talking about a lot we've been talking about what kind of fitness means what kind of activity means in the modern world and i think sally really drove home the importance of those ideas people who listen to us regularly will know that loon and i are no strangers to what is technically called um, inflated or repetitive hyperbole. So we regularly introduce people as the, the inimitable and the incredible, and in some cases, the inexorable. And then we get to someone like Sally, and the repetitive and the inflated hyperbole is frankly not enough. I think the scale and scope of her achievements, which were motivated by no other reason than the fact that she wanted to do something with her life and she wanted to change her life, and so she went out and did it, are staggering among my many flaws. I have the flaw of thinking that people who achieve extraordinary things are somehow bulletproof. Even though I know about Steve Redgrave's colitis and his diabetes, there's an inevitability about the fact that he won his fifth gold. Even though I know that James Cracknell leaves no James Cracknell behind, there's an inevitability about the fact that the truck that hit him is now rusting in an American scrapyard and James is soldiering on. But the reality is, after listening to Sally, people who do extraordinary things face extraordinary challenges in their own life, in their, in their mental health, in their body image, in the way they feel about themselves, in the way that they look at the world. And I think that what she's talking about is, is almost a living manual of you can do it and there will be challenges but the challenges are actually the reason why you do it the the end goal is great but it's actually overcoming those things in sequence that teaches you so much maybe not at the time but in retrospect i agree entirely i also do need to tell you that i did just have to look up the word in extra book right now just to check what it meant it's, you've used it so many times, or is that just me using it? Th I think it's literally just you. I, I, I go for in inimitable, but uh, I think it is very much true. Um, I'm going to say that next week, 
we have an equally interesting and important podcast from Sally as we go into part two of our interview. And we would very much like you to join us for that. As, as, we, as we move on to talking about her, her life post-adventurous um, and her work in uh, the charity sector, which is, I think, vital and empowering for, for girls, young ladies and women and mums. I think it is. But for now, thank you very much. And we're going to say goodnight. So, stroke side holding, bow side out.